Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm here today with Russell Case. Hi, this is Russell Case, and this is Fresh Air. (laughs) Fresh Air. (laughs) With a very dear friend of ours, a lovely human being. One John. of the finest intellects I've ever had the pleasure to to meet in our beloved Dr. John Campbell. Hi, Hi guys. <laughs> I I'm so I'm so glad to be here and to be chatting with my my dear friends. Cool. We're happy to have you here to interview. It's so kind of you to join us. Well, John, of course. I, of course, we've known each other a, a long time, but I think the, when we really started our relationship very intensely and personally was when um, Gene Ruffin uh, got us together with the Joyce Foundation. That became, yeah. uh, became Pure Edge. Um, as you know, uh, Gene passed away over the weekend. Uh, yes, I was sorry to hear that. Of COVID. And I, I don't know if you have any kind of back pocket ceremony that you know, but I, I thought maybe we could do something. Um, well, that's sweet. For Gene. Well, I think that's a, a lovely idea. Um, I, uh, when you mentioned that, um, or when you mentioned that his passing, then I thought a similar thing. And, and um, I didn't think that we would do it here, but let, that, let's do that. So this is a, um, uh, in, in, the, in the Buddhist tradition, you have the, the uh, they call her goddess, but really she's a Buddhist, Tara. And Tara is a, is a female um, in iconography, but she's an enlightened being. And she is the, uh, said to have arisen from one of the, tears out of the eye of the Bodhisattva of compassion, Avalokiteshvara. Um, and so she's pure love and compassion and caring. And so it, it, they, the idea in these amazing traditions uh, that we've been involved in one way or another, yoga tradition, is typically pretty much a broadly shared idea that when somebody passes, you know, the, the body is going to shut down, but the mind can stick around for as much as you know, even seven days. It could be very short time. Um, and that's why there's a lot of concern in the, especially, especially in the, the, the I guess you'd say the Tibetan tradition. Um, I'm not so sure about East Asia, where you don't want to really mess around with the body too much, um, and you want to and you want to do prayers for this person. So, uh, prayer, I think, is the right word. And you're really just—it's almost like making them feel comfortable because the mind is very disoriented once it's departed from the body, and almost in a panic because it sees itself. And it has a hard time, it has a hard time letting go. I'm sure you guys probably had that experience of being with, with somebody right at the end of their life and they, they can hold on. And 
sometimes it's necessary to, they have to feel they have the permission and that will often come, you know, from a, from a loved one being there who is no longer wailing and weeping, but is saying, it's okay. You're okay. You're just, it's just another, it's just another uh, journey. Um, so I'll just say, uh, um, I'm going to just say, uh, let's say uh, the Tara mantra, um, which is her, which is her, what they call her Mula mantra, her main mantra. And, and then we can just think about, about Gene and, and wishing him, you know, uh, everything good for his transition. Okay. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Om. Om tare tu tare ture. Ayur punye jnana pushtim kuru ye swaha. Om tare tu tare ture. Mama ayur punye jnana pushtim kuru ye swaha. Om tare tu tare ture. Mama ayur punye jnana pushtim kuru ye swaha. And then you can say after me, Om. Om. Tare. Tare. Tutare. Tutare. Ture. Ture. Swaha. Swaha. That was so nice. Yeah. It's a huge thing to lose uh, um, a, uh, obviously, I mean, not like I'm saying some sage thing. I lost my father uh, coming up on two years ago. Mm-hmm. Was it? Yeah, that's right. And I just was, I, I was so rocked by it, you know, and it was a, it was a sudden death I mean, his passing was very sudden and I've had to learn a lot about, <laughs> about things since then. I just had such a, uh, a very fortunate life. Well, I don't know how fortunate it is. It just, that was the, yeah, I just hadn't really had anyone close to me die before that. Um, and it also gave me a lot of perspective. I don't know if this is something we might talk about, but it gave me a lot of perspective on the kind of uh, mentors and teachers I had been attracted to, mm-hmm. you know, once he was gone. Um, How so? What did you discover? Well, I mean, I think the most, the most, um, like most you know, parental relationships, there's, uh, there was all, there was this ambivalence, I considered him to be the most gentle, uh, decent, um, uh, person. And I, and I agree. And I get a lot of, I would get a lot of comfort from being around him, but he was also very absent. He was, uh, an alcoholic. He suffered from, you know, periodic crippling depressions. And so, you know, it it was not something that we could ever actually at the really end of his life. We, we did sh- somewhat share about, about that. 
but really I didn't, you know, he, there was no access to him like as a, as a teacher. Uh, it just made me feel safe when I was around him. But when I was away from him, or I, I don't think that, you know, it was like a void, uh, didn't feel very connected to him as a, as a guide. And I don't think he had the sort of self, he wasn't, uh, strong enough in himself to, to even provide that. So when I, you know, and then I go through just to answer your question, I think about the different people who, who have served as teachers and mentors for me. And they are like powerhouse. <laughs> they are powerhouse, uh, men typically. And not, and if they're not male gender, then as you know, they're females with extraordinary, you know, strength, not that that's not a normal thing, but sort of, um, I don't even know why we're talking about it as male, except that for the most part, the teachers have been male, but in my, in my friendships and relationships, the, the women have been extremely strong and yeah. So that's something I'm kind of figuring out, um, definitely was the case when I started doing yoga. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I, I have to agree with you. There was something about that gene that compensated for father figures in my life. And I'd have to say that like you, I had sought out powerful, charismatic men who could, really deeply share and teach me how to be a man in this world. And I, I pursued them one after the other. Uh, my grandfather, uh, General George Marco, who was a brigadier general, who my mom was dating, um, my, my painting, my main painting teacher, Leonard Anderson and, and Batabi Joyce. Mm -hmm. And when Gene came around, it was, he just kind of, it was the sense of kind of affirmation um, with him that he kind of just looked at me and saw some things that could be useful within a particular sphere, which was an organ organizing business. And he said, come along, let's do this together. And um, I thought he was like, I said this to a crowd of people in New York, Eddie, had organized a, a group of teachers in Manhattan and, and I, we brought them all together and I was introducing Gene. I said, he's like a Buddha. He's the most non-reactive personality mm -hmm. I've ever met. And it was, it was extraordinary how he ran and managed his emotional affairs. And I, I don't mean, I don't mean romantic affairs, but I mean how he managed his emotional life. And I was extraordinary um extraordinary uh human being yeah i want to i want to talk more about gene later but i'd like to to start back with you um because this is a show about you and not and not gene it's just we just knew him well in 2003 i came to mysore for the first time and and met you there and and you were were you there on a long trip you had yeah. grown handlebar mustaches, I think. <laughs> yeah, that was it. They were all the rage. Um, I think, in fact, at the time, there was this... Uh, do you remember Gustav? The Swedish oh, cool. yeah. yeah, Gustav yeah. Was, was dating 
um, Katie Edmiston from London. That's, that's was right, right, exactly. Quite, quite the rage. <laughs> right, right. Well, well, Gustav just gave everyone the flutters, you know, I mean, or whatever. It, Not it, me, yeah. certainly the ladies. Well, and so he, he was going around. Ladies. Yes, he was. He was. Um, oh, my God. A Swedish gymnast <laughs> who could do anything. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, as you know, he was, he, he was very... Um, you know, an artist of a pair, uh, yeah. styling. Yeah. And, and so, that's right. Yeah. So he was doing and everybody's hair. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Um, that you know, he would go. And, and so basically he started to, you know, he was going around, uh, you know, giving everybody the same somewhat like, you know, Aryan, you know, nation <laughs> haircut. <laughs> and we all started growing mustaches and he insisted that we shave our bald. I don't remember. No. Oh yeah. He was Fuck like, off. no, no, you I'm shaved serious. your nuts. <laughs> I'm saying that he wanted everybody. To. He was like, he was like, what you mean? You don't, you know? <laughs> uh, and every time, I mean, I think about that pretty often. It's really funny. But by the way, I'm not, I, you know, I don't, I'm not going to reveal that on no, public no, radio. That's not going on the radio. <laughs> um, I remember, see, this is really cool, is that I was, I just graduated with an MFA in painting at Brooklyn College, uh, which was Mark Rothko's, uh, a school of art that Mark, Mark Rothko had founded post-war. Mm-hmm. And at that same time, I'd started studying with Guy Donahue and, and I was just, I was a fucking wreck. I was waking up at three in the morning to do Ashtanga yoga. And I was going to bed at like one at night uh, after painting all fucking day and doing, I had three jobs. And at one point in the midst of all of that, we had a visiting artist who came and she showed us uh, uh, picture stills of herself uh, in on stage, on knitting her own dress Mm-hmm. and then knitting them back together. And so the amazing thing about you, John, is I had seen naked pictures of your wife before meeting you. Yeah. And I yeah. have to say, I was sad not to repeat that experience. <laughs> it, I'm sure it could be arranged, but, you know, the thing is, uh, uh, um, yeah, I, I'm not sure you may, in fact, I'm almost certain you saw that, you saw not just that you you saw her naked before you met me. You saw her naked before I ever met her. <laughs> so, oh, uh, wow. but I I met we her met. on that trip. No, I didn't meet her. Um, uh, that that's uh, but I didn't. I met her shortly before that, like early '97. So that's when we must have. No, no, you you met early. We oh, met what am I saying? Out. We met in 2003, you said. 2001, 2002, something like that. Because okay. it was. You and Claude. Well, anyway. Claude I'm, Bernard, yeah. I'm not sure when, of the chronology, but no, we, I, we didn't meet on that trip. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, we, she and I met in, uh, in 97. This is Claude, Claude Wampler, my, my queen, my, my wife that we're talking about. And uh, um, so I, but I was there probably at the time on the beginning of a pretty extended trip uh, because I was a graduate student at Columbia doing, um, doing a PhD in Buddhist studies. Uh, and 
So if it depends, if it was 2001, then maybe it was just another trip. 2002, I was there for the long haul and I was not just in Mysore, but just in India generally for doing, um, doctoral research. Part of that was happening in Mysore. And, uh, yeah. And I do remember meeting you. I think we like, you know, anyway, recognized, you recognized each other, the two of you. Yeah, we did. Claude and I recognized each other. I, I had a, a conversation with her outside the Shala one day, and I I was saying to her like how you know, really it was kind of brutal it was to be in the room and doing Ashtanga yoga and suffering. And I was just kind of talking to her and sharing with her the feeling. And I said, the weird thing about it is is to is to understand that I'm also every other person in the room. And that's the weird thing. <laughs> and she like did a double take and she looked at me. I said, you know, we're having a party this weekend. You should come. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went over and I met you at the, at the party. We had a pizza party with you and Noah and Kimberly. And uh-huh. I brought my Scottish friend, Laura Smith. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> And uh, it was awesome. It was awesome meeting you. And I, I remember you as, as you were doing some horrific asana, like maybe Kapala asana or Buddhasana, something right. where you have to tear your thigh off your body with an arm bar. Right. You have to remove it completely from the body. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I, um, you're right. I was... I was working on these advanced poses then. And, um, you know, and what I thought about when you mentioned that in, you know, in our correspondence recently, it suddenly popped into my mind, you know, this whole idea about how, uh, like in India, they have this tradition of what they call Siddhas, the, 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 sort of advanced yogis and perfected and, and all the, or just, you know, sadhus who do long-term austerities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they stand on one foot or they, they, they never cut their fingernails or they, right. you know, hang an arm off of, a, off of a staff and never put it, take it, take it down. Right. And, and until it withers and so yeah. forth. And I, it's, you know, I was thinking it's so interesting, like how, and especially speaking to you as an artist and um, how much like theater this whole, you know, uh, Ashtanga practice is <laughs> and how much so much of, you know, Indian based or Indic, uh, what would you call it? Like, you know, spiritual practices, especially the ones that, that engage your imagination or your body, um, how much they, they really are. There's sort of a, there's a theatrical element to it. Like you're enacting something, right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, exactly. so the arm bar over my, over my, over my other, you know, you'd have to see it to, to believe it, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, that is simulating something, right. Yeah. Hmm. What do you mean simulating something? Well, in the same way that, you know, why we, I mean, I'm not an artist, but I think about it. I'm married to an artist. 
the, the, in the same way that we can have an experience of, uh, let's say, sorrow or uh, empathy in, in, a, in a, I'm talking more about theater now, like the performance of something. You can watch The Exorcist and get really scared. Mm-hmm. But those are, and, and they can be really genuine in that, in that you're experiencing the full impact of this emotional, you know, a- affect. But you get to leave the theater. And it's, yeah. and it's, and it's sort of, you get to enter into this intense world and then you leave without actually having to see someone, you know, get possessed <laughs> by the devil or, um, and, and so like theater, theaters like that. And I've just been, because I, I still, uh, in my own, in my own like interest in, in the yoga tradition and, um, spiritual traditions in India, I think, you know, there is so much performance in the rich on the ritual side, like making, you know, doing puja, making offerings, mm-hmm. uh, inviting a deity to be present with you. Um, or I even identifying with that, 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 that deity. So it's kind of like there's theater going on and you, you're, you're kind of the main actor and you're faking it till you make it sort mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. That's super interesting because it, it reminds me of one of my first, uh, I wonder how to describe this, a first lesson in in the self as performance. Uh-huh. That I would watch my mom go into a shop, and she was famous for this when I was younger, and she would just completely lose her shit on the shopkeeper and some kind uh-huh. And like one time, uh, a laundrette lady uh, was, she chased her into a closet in her own shop. (laughs) Oh my God. Enraged. And she would do the same thing to waitresses. I mean, she was really fucking hell. And (laughs) then we'd walk out of the shop and she'd be completely, you know, straight. And we'd just go on doing something else. And I realized that she was acting. That she was using rage performatively to achieve a particular uh, uh, desire. And she just, she didn't have a lot of other skills to achieve her desires, but this one really worked for her. And I I was like, Oh, you're, when you're using it, when you are having an emotion, you're using it to, because you want to something to be done with it. But did that make it, didn't that make you feel kind of insecure about how, how she interacted with you? Oh, I'm deeply insecure. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. I, I just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, everyone who knows me knows. Yeah. Um, that's part of maybe why we share so much. Um, yeah, maybe. maybe. Yeah. I wonder, I want to ask you one more question about Asana before, before moving on to your, your childhood. Um, I, 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 I would watch you because it was theater. I'd be, I'd be in the foyer of the Ashtanga Yoga Institute, and that was the grandstands. That was the stage. Yeah. That was where you would watch the stage, and you could learn. But you're also like watching people in who are in deep emotional turmoil, suffering. Mm. And but you were somehow a little bit different to me. Cause I had watched you and there was this extraordinary lightness to you. I, I remember vividly watching you grab your own knees in standing back bends one day and you just flipped back into it. I'm like, what, 
the fuck is this? (laughs) Right. And you were so incredibly light and flexible and the most gifted asana practitioner I had met to that point. And I, but you said to me that you were getting like one posture every two years. Like, how is that possible? (laughs) Well, I think at that time it might've been true. Um, that wasn't consistently throughout my, uh, you know, my Ashtanga, um, or my being a, you know, student, um, of Batabi Joyce and Sharat, uh, you know, there were times where, you know, sections of those, you know, many sequences where postures got added on pretty quickly. At that point, what you're describing is when I was starting or had, I was, I was doing fourth series and that's probably a little bit under, you know, that can't possibly be true one every two years, but it was, it was going pretty slow. I got to tell you that. <laughs> And, but I think the reason you go, you know, what, what you just said made me think about why I was very at ease in that room and not, and not struggling and freaking out and, you know, getting bent out of shape because someone took my spot, which I, I I would see that and just be like, huh, isn't that weird that some people like and of course they're having a deep, you know, they're having a, a, a strong experience. Mm-hmm. Yoga is bringing that up for me. Um, the, I don't know something about a uh, combination of the environment. I mean, that is, you know, being in India uh, and particularly as a student there with this particular teacher, I, I felt I was surrendered I had a very strong sense of, I know that I, I, I can't explain why this is good, but I know it's good. Um, and whatever happens, happens, you know, uh, I was really, uh, allowing a process to, to take place. And it was the first time in my life where I wasn't trying to fix things externally, fix myself with external things. Um, and that's why, yeah, that's why I took to it so, so strongly. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's probably what you were, what you were seeing and, you know, um, and even then, I mean, it's funny because of considering the time this was in, you know, early two thousands. And so my teacher was getting quite old at that point he was direct you know he was less and less directly teaching he was more sort of sitting back uh there were you know the the group of people was increasing constantly to the point where it was you know it was it was crowd control more than teaching mm-hmm. and uh i did that didn't terribly much bother me but i knew this is you know for me i'm gonna have to outgrow this yeah. i'm going to yeah. Because it will no longer be there for me. And it was one of these, you know, many times in my life where I've had a keen sense of uh, impermanence while at the same time being childishly and neurotically, you know, desperate for things not to change. Mm. That's you so interesting, yeah. You describe him as your teacher. Would you, 
Would you, Shrikipatabi Joyce, would you say that that's comprehensive? Like that was a, he was comprehensively your teacher, your, your guru, or was he, was he a teacher in a more, in a more limited fashion? Yeah, that, that's a super interesting question to me. Um, I, uh, is there, is it one or the other? Um, so, you know, as you guys know, I've been a student of Buddhism for, for not, for almost as long as, as a Ashtanga practitioner and where they kind of gone hand in hand for me. And there's a really, you know, through the, especially the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, huge emphasis upon, um, you know, a, both teachers, but also this special quality of a guru who you identify really as an enlightened being. And the talk about faking it till you make it, you know, you're basically practicing seeing all beings as in, as, as manifestations of, of pure enlightenment and you as well, mm-hmm. but you're using a living, breathing, you know, what do you, would you call that? Like antenna for that. And it's a pretty intense, there is nothing comparable. In fact, outside of India, in most spiritual traditions, that kind of identification with, you know, living, breathing, uh, uh, you know, instantiation of, of ultimate truth, reality, whatever, becomes heretical because, you know, it's, you can't just, you know, but that's this unique thing about the, about the South Asian spiritual tradition. Like, you know, they're not squeamish about the, the enlightenment being everywhere and yeah. all places and at all times. And so that lends itself, of course, to this, you know, this personal relationship thing. And um, so going back to the question, I learned through, you know, Guruji uh, in so many different ways. Was he that kind of guru where I thought he was an enlightened being is totally uh, whatever, whatever that means. Right. He was a realized being. Um, I guess the answer is no. And what I consider, and I, and, and that was not to say that I thought less of him, you know, and maybe I'm totally wrong, but my understanding of, you know, his tradition, the, the, the Brahminical tradition was that that kind of guru relationship actually is quite different than how it's defined in, you know, say the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. So for a guru is somebody that makes, you know, it transmits special knowledge to you mm-hmm. and can make, you know, to draw out of you the, you know, the amazing experiences. I don't, you know, it's like, I never, I, I certainly never once saw him asking people or presenting himself like, you know, I'm God or, uh, if anything, you know, he, he was, uh, I don't know, maybe he was a Buddha, but, uh, he was certainly a crypto Buddha <laughs> because, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so long, 
I don't think I answered your question very well, but basically I think through him and through my, you know, what opened up for me through him was, was every, you know, possible spiritual path that would be appropriate for me. And I think like, um, you know, in his tradition, I mean, you know, his, you know, you, you normally have to be born into it. You have to be born a Brahmin. And, um, and so it was, it's pretty radical that he and that lineage, you know, Krishnamacharya especially, were willing to teach, uh, non-Brahmins because, you know, in the, it, it, traditionally that's, that's not supposed to happen. You have to have this sort of, you know, be, have this birthright to do it. And he, he obviously transcended that. And I think because he knew we could never become Brahmins just by like dressing right or doing this or that, that really, it was, he was giving us the tools to, you know, find our own highest potential, find our own spiritual path. And that's what Ashtanga has been for me. Whether or not that's what he thought he was doing, um, I can't speculate. But I do know that once I started, you know, I was practicing with him in Mysore and then gradually started going more and more, you know, spending more time at the monastery. And he knew I was, I, 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 I hung out with the Buddhists and I really liked Buddhism. Um, and he used to tease me about it. <laughs> Kind of like, oh, well, you know, because I often, you know, I have pretty well read in, in, uh, and I start, I was learning Sanskrit, which he inspired me to do. I was learning, um, certainly Hindu philosophy, which he inspired me to do. I never really got into, you know, I, the, other than historically the, you know, the Vedic tradition, which he was a master of. And so because I wasn't really, you know, you know, I'd come back and we could chat about, I don't know, Shankaracharya and his, his philosophy. And I would bring up the Buddhists and he would just start laughing at me and be like, you know, okay, that's, that's fun. You know, you'll get over it. He was super tolerant. I made a yeah. drawing of Guruji once. He allowed me to, to come into the, into his office and he, like every day, he would sit there and he would read Sankara in his little book. Right. And so I sat there and I made a drawing of him reading that little book. And uh, I gave it to him and never saw it again. So I, yeah. I thought it would, be, it would go up right on the wall with all the other drawings I'd given him, but <laughs> it did not. That's so funny. Again, like I assumed that we were in the exact same place at the same time. You know, we were brothers from another mother because Russell, I, I, you know, but this was back at the old house and old neighborhood, very small neighborhood. He did the same thing in his office upstairs in Lakshmipuram. And at his birthday, it was such a big deal. We, everybody would try to like, but this was like the old days, like a big present was, a framed picture, you know, yeah. and, uh, and I, I had this local sculpture, sculptor, uh, stone, you know, stone sculptor do a, a small Hanuman, which I presented to him. And, and he, he, he smiled and, you know, said, thank you very much. And of course I never saw it again. So, <laughs> I know 
Yeah. Speaking of of betrayals, um, (laughs) you're a part of an ancient family of Scots whose principal charm is that they kill their dinner guests. Is that correct? So I've been told. So I've been told. The Campbells are, are, and I, you know, um, people who, who were massacred by the Campbells or descendants of them typically know more about the Campbells than the Campbells. Because, I mean, you know, we were just bloodthirsty, you know, dinner hosts, I guess. But yeah. I, however, uh, yeah, no, I, I really don't. I've never been to Scotland. Uh, I would love to go. I know very, very little about it um, or about my ancestry. I just know that it's a, it was a, yeah, a murderous bunch. Well, we live in Alberta, of course, which is a, a Scottish province. Calgary is, an, is a name for a, a Scottish uh, town. Oh, okay. And it was founded by Scottish military officers, and everyone in Harmony's family is a Scot. And mm-hmm. even last night, they, they do this really quite often. They, I'm often attacked at dinner. <laughs> um, <laughs> normally for my liberal beliefs um ah, do you, right. so you don't relate as much to that side of the family do you or is, is there like an andy warhol side of the family that uh, I, are, I, I, are you are you a campbell soup guy you're a manhattan no, i think i am a manhattan guy um no 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 relation to the campbell soup uh uh thing um yeah i we grew up i grew up in new york city uh, in Manhattan because, uh, my parents, you know, they actually moved there almost exactly when I was born. Cause, uh, let's see. Uh, well, my dad, my parents met in Albany, New York. They were both, they're basically from there. Uh, and then, you know, after college, uh, my and pretty much right after college they got married they got married and my dad got a job in the city and and they moved there you know and it was the they set up they set up shop in my um so yeah we, i was i was born there but they what part of manhattan uh grew up on the upper east side of okay. manhattan and what you know and do? so what kind of- well, my dad, my, my mom full time took care of me and my brother and sister. Well, like what do you, we're, we're all, I mean, the three of us are maybe four years, you know, apart at the moment. Mm-hmm. They're not even that much. 68 Scotch twins. Three, we're three years apart. I mean, basically boom, boom, boom. And then my father worked in finance. And so they were really not like urbanites, you know, they were, um, especially my dad, I think he had absolutely no interest in the city. Um, uh, in, in later in her life, my mom, you know, came to really, really enjoy it. But so I was like super sheltered and living in this little bubble of to go to, I went to a private school. Um, and also New York in the seventies was like actually a pretty, a pretty gnarly place. Mm-hmm. So, so it wasn't really uh, appropriate as it, you know, now it's become, you know, it's unrecognizable yeah. and in some ways, you know, that's in a good way, a good thing because you can go all over. Uh, for example, Claude and I live 
for about ten years in Harlem. I mean, that was in that was inconceivable back in back in the day. You know, you didn't. It was just a totally you know segregated city. And then after that, I uh, well, just just a second. I, you're how would you describe your relationship with your dad at that point growing up? Was it just just distant, like you just didn't see him, or you saw him at dinner and quietly? Yeah, I saw I, I saw him at dinner. Um, we played backgammon. I would make my mom a whiskey sour, and a, he taught me how to make him what he called a martini, but it was actually just vodka on ice. And, um, <laughs> and that sounds I, that's, very that's amazing. I at seven, I learned how to make a gin and tonic, and I made a yeah, gin and tonic there every you go. day the rest of my childhood for my You're right every well, fucking day, John. That's that's intense, and that maybe that's that's the Scottish thing, you know. I'm not sure. You know, we well, were really uh, piety. Uh, converted to Judaism, but um, who who did? My mother is an Irish Swede converted to Judaism. Wow. Yeah. So she interesting. Yeah, she drank a lot. So yeah. yeah so so, that, so you know, he was he was he was a very very gentle person, and uh, and you know, so I, I was always happy to see him, and then. Um, yeah, uh, kind of un, un, unremarkable. I mean, I'm sure there's something, something <laughs> more going I'm on so there. I'm so curious, John, because when, um, I first heard about you, it was through Noah Williams, who uh-huh. was saying that, and I hadn't met you yet because we didn't meet until 2007, I believe, but, mm-hmm. um, he said, you got to meet John Campbell. He can do any asana. He's the most gifted asana practitioner I've Noah ever seen. That? And that was... That was from Noah? Yeah, Noah's pretty wow. gifted also. <laughs> right. So. That's, that's crazy. I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, he had a lot right. of respect for you. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. I mean, you know, so, yeah, Noah, um, I... And it's also, I have such fondness for, for him, um, still, and I, I'm not really in touch with him, but I met him. He was in my store his first time when he was like 19, maybe yeah. possibly yeah. 20, possibly yeah. 20. I don't know. And I just would, we would hang out and he just, it would crack me up. He was like, he was just such a kid and not only a kid, but I don't know if you know his background at all, but he's a, he was raised like in this very, uh, you know, well, was a Hare Krishna, you know. His so, father started a, a surfer museum. Oh, I didn't know. I, I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, we we go. We we went way back, and then at a certain point, when uh, during that long period of of uh, grad school, when I was in India, mm-hmm. by spending some time in in Mysore, he and I were learning this, you know, advanced B series basically exactly at the same time. Like they would, you know, show us the next pose the same day. And we were, and then my mom, and then my darn sister, she had to go get married. And so I left, uh, (laughs) no, I I left to go for her wedding. And then while Noah continued to, you know, plow ahead with, with those asanas, <laughs> a greedy, greedy little mo- uh, asana muncher, right? 
Right. And, and then things really shifted for me because I was still going to, I was still in India for an entire, at least a year beyond that. But, uh, that was no longer my sort that I was based in Varanasi, mm-hmm. uh, and a little bit in Dharamsala, if you know those areas. Well, I'm just going to um, try to, to keep us on the on the straight and narrow narrative path here. Uh, okay, let's go. Let's go back to your childhood. And um, you're amazing. I want to know. I, I I know <laughs> yeah. So you were on the streets of Manhattan <laughs> in the gnarly gnarly 70s and 80s, and were you? Did you know Eddie then? Were you in the same private? No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. And you kind of have to like imagine the extreme opposite of what I know of Eddie's. Uh, like you know, he he grew up in Greenwich Village. He's a very you know like very privileged family like mine, but very much unlike me. You know, he he was really like a wild child and partied and was a punk rocker and everything. And I basically oh well. Uh, he had a huge mohawk. Um, I starting in ninth grade, I went off to a boarding school, yeah, prep school, I guess they call them in New Hampshire, and which was like academically very rigorous, and and that was my whole world then. So I basically left New York, uh, and it wasn't so my high school years really. I wasn't at all. I was barely in New York. I came back there only to live when I graduated from college in 1990. Were you, were you, um, using in New Hampshire? Oh, you mean the, 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 what's it called? The evil weed. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I started in, in ninth, well, ninth grade. Like I think I tried, you know, a smoke pot the first time. Um, by 10th grade, yeah, uh, it was, it was game on, you know, like my circle of friends, we, we liked to smoke a lot, um, or as we could get away with it, uh, some drinking less so, um, and psychedelics, which, which, uh, we also, I think that, that by, by far was the most, um, kind of important thing for us. And then by the time I, I got to, uh, there were no other, I mean, those are all probably completely inappropriate for 16, 17 year olds. I, I would benevolent say, <laughs> right. Uh, you know, there were no, to, that I knew of, there were no more, there were no other hard drugs at the time. So it was a weird experience for sure, because th- the school is, is, you know, takes over as your parent and things have changed up. In fact, my daughter, Asa, uh, is now a student at that same school and she's in 10th wow. grade. Uh, oh, yeah. wow. And wow. It's changed, but it's changed so much. This was back in the day where it was like, you know, the, if, if you could, if you could keep your head above water academically and you didn't get caught, like anything goes because, <laughs> because people weren't really paying attention. And so we are, my friends and I, we were kind of this pack, you know, we would, we were kind of raising each other, which, Probably wasn't so good developmentally, um, I'm guessing. And then by the time I got to, uh, like, around my senior year, I, I could I, I never wanted to smoke pot again. It, it, it doesn't suit me. Uh, but, it, you know, using 
you know, drugs and, and, and drinking, it was completely a, except for the psychedelics, which, which I took very seriously, actually, <laughs> uh, I, but, but any other kind of thing like drinking was, was, um, what's the right word to say? I mean, it was, it was just a social thing, you know, yeah. I, I, uh, and as you know, because we are basically, we were together the entire time, Russell, yeah. you never left, you never left my side. No, um, you know, late, much later in my life, then these things started, these things became a major problem and, you know, and something that I needed to address, but for whatever reason it, that, that, that didn't happen <laughs> then. Mm-hmm. When was the first time? That it became a problem? Yeah. Oh, uh, well, I can tell you exactly. It became a problem you know, these things creep up on you in, in all sorts of ways. You know, in hindsight, you can see behaviors and, you know, ways that you behave where you were like, you, you were too, you, uh, like in my, in my relationships, for example, I became, you know, was always seeking fulfillment outside of myself. Um, and then, but specifically with the kind of things that, um, you know, chemical dependence and abuse, uh, that, Started around 2004. It was during this long period of time I was in India. And many years later. Many years later, which is so, isn't that weird? Wow. And you had already been practicing Ashtanga yoga for many years, also in like finished advanced series as well. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. And, oh, my goodness. So, so that was the, this, this weird, um, you know, anyway, that was just my, my story. Uh, the the entire time from the time I started uh, Ashtanga, which was January of 1993, until we started at the same time, John. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, no, it, it was you know, other than the occasional uh, glass of wine, you know, with dinner. But that's, but you know what, not even then, I think that's not totally true. I, but it, it hadn't become a problem mm-hmm. at all. You know, I could take it or leave it. Sometimes I'd have a cup, you know, a glass of wine. This period of time I was in India was the time, you know, as I was saying, it was there to be working on dissertation research and writing a thesis. And I got very, uh, I got very confused and lost, uh, and depressed. I was in, I was in a really, um, you know, in the environment itself was very isolating. I I was actually a student. I was doing research and studying with some teachers right outside of Aranasi, which is in, in this location called Sarnath, which is very holy pilgrimage site as the, the location uh, where the where the Shakyamuni Shakyamuni Buddha gave his first teaching, mm-hmm. and so and it's right outside of Aranasi. So I was basically shuttling back and forth. They're only like I don't know, fifteen kilometers apart. Um, and this whole you know thesis thing, <laughs> which every person who's ever done a long term you know dissertation, mostly I think they at some point they go kind of crazy because uh, I don't know. But I was, I felt very confused I, I, and directionless. I, I didn't really understand what the project was anymore. 
I didn't understand what I should do, you know, like any kind of, what should I do next? Mm -hmm. And all of that uncertainty and confusion and isolation in this very, uh, and also, I mean, I guess some kind of culture shock because I'm, I'm surrounded by people, uh, I'm in a totally alien environment and I felt like an alien. And I think that some kind of very heavy depression came on me, but that was the time where I started dabbling in, um, the, 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 basically the pharmaceutical stuff that you can get over the counter in India, not drinking, but, and then that, we, we have a, we have a friend who was just shooting up ketamine in, uh-huh. in Myanmar at that time. Oh, really? I wow. I don't want to embarrass him by using his name, but we both know him really well. And, also and, an advanced yeah, practitioner. Also an advanced practitioner who was phenomenal. But yeah. Um, yeah. So, get, but, yeah. You can get as, as if you've been spent time there, you know, like it's, it's a bit of, it can be like the wild west and in that way. Now that was, not, of course, it wasn't helping me, <laughs> but it was making things uh, sort of more tolerable. And then when I came back to uh, full-time, returned to the U.S., Claude and I were, were together, and we decided to start a family. And we, uh, Asa then was born in um, February of 2005. And I think that what was interesting you know from pretty much that time onward uh i you know i started to have struggles with wanting to change the way i felt Mm -hmm. by some artificial means Mm. um it became imperative you know like i i was you know it's just basically on you would generally it's pretty unscientific, but you, I would say untreated alcoholism, you know? Um, I do. And and that kind of, and that kind of progressed because I wasn't willing to deal with it. I was in the the last stages of my divorce. Um, actually, I'm sorry. I was in the last stages of my marriage and uh, about to initiate a divorce when I had to go to, to France with my in-laws for two weeks in the summer of, I guess, 2016, 2015. And I did not want to be there. I didn't want to have anything to do with any people there. And so for the first time in my life, I, um, I started, uh, drinking anything that I could see. (laughs) And if I could see it, I would drink it. And people, I noticed some people around me, like getting kind of excited, like, Oh, we've got a live one. And they started pushing drinks at me. And my wife at the time started trying to hide drinks from me, which I, I ignored and I would just take them right mm-hmm. back out of her hand and down it. And I would like start at like nine in the morning. And I realized at that point that I had a, a superpower that I was not aware of mm-hmm. that I could drink as much as I possibly would want and an hour later, I'd be stone sober. Uh-huh. 
And wow. so I was drinking like... You'd feel so sober. <laughs> yeah, I feel. What's the difference? I was still like 17, 18 glasses of champagne or wine in, a, in the day because I started early. And I, every time, like, at like 30, 45 minutes go by, I like, I'm fucking sober again. <laughs> fucking hell. I'm going to keep drinking. And I didn't know this about myself because I, I thought my father was an alcoholic. Uh, I'm not going to drink. And I'd have like a glass of champagne at my wedding for the first time. It was like, wow, I'm tipsy. And so I always kind of thought that, you know, I was a lightweight drinker. And then I discovered this, this thing. It's like, yeah, it hits me really hard for about 15 minutes, but then it goes away. And I, I came home and I said, I called my mom. I said, what the, what's, what the fuck is, what's, there's something about me that I didn't know. What the fuck is this? And that's when she told me that she had, um, she had never seen a man consume as much alcohol and be straight and sober as my father. Uh-huh. And I had, I had no idea about this. And I was just suddenly a late, I'm 41, <laughs> and it was a late career discovery uh-huh. that I, um, I'm aware is an incredibly dangerous discovery to make. Mm-hmm. Well, is that, is that proven, like, um, I don't know, problematic? for you since then, or you, or you just now know that you have to be cautious. I am aware that, uh, I've kind of broken something and that if it's next to me, I'm going to say yes to it. And like, that was never the case before. I could always kind of say no before. Yeah. But I'm now aware that like, I don't want to say no. Mm. And so yeah, I've kind of I've tried to create kind of artificial boundaries, like 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 we're not like don't go to Costco, <laughs> <laughs> don't go to Trader Joe's, you know, like there are places like to avoid unless I want to come home with like eight bottles of. of, of, of you know. But it was on sale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trader Joe's is the fucking worst. Um, does that resonate with you at all? Does that is that something yeah, that I, oh yeah definitely i mean the the um i think uh, yeah it, it, it is a progressive you know thing um and especially there's a it's a whole you know i think the best uh, clinical description of it is it's a you know bio psycho social spiritual disorder which is why, you know, medical science can't really nail it down, honestly, mm-hmm. um, because uh, even with something that, you know, the, the, the darkest of and most addictive of all, you know, substances, heroin, you know, it, it, you can, people get it all the time for medical procedures and they walk away and they never have the slightest inclination to look back, you know, it's, so it's not that just because, you know, all humans, it's not like kryptonite. And it is very specific to, I don't think it's, you know, it's like specific to, you know, individual um, biologies or physiologies. I think it's specific to people's mind, body. And when they're, because of who they are, the kind of person they are, when they're presented with with this possibility, 
they it's just like it's just like what we've always been told you know taught in in yoga you know two people enter the same room they see two different things because of their their own mind it is our mind that is uh manifesting our reality and that's completely the case i think for um you know for for substances because once you have some feeling of lack or need that isn't being fulfilled anywhere else. And then you discover this becomes your solution for another person. It is not a solution because they don't have that need and they don't have that expectation. So it is, uh, and then of course, you know, if you keep indulging it, then it does become physiological. You know, you, you get dependence and blah, blah, blah. But I think what you're saying it's very familiar to me because what I discovered about myself is that I liked, I didn't really want to drink and and get out of control or use and get out of control. I just wanted to just be that way all the time (laughs) and just maintain. Now that was never possible. So then it, then it, then it, um, I mean, it was unacceptable and it, 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 what's the right word? Uh, it, it, that entered into the the worst and kind of most toxic period of it, which is that it, it always involves deceit, lying in order to control. So I'm controlling, you know, what people know about me and more and more retreating into this like do you know, double world. I'm going to control people's perception of me. Um, and I just started to, operate in the world like that, you know, that was like my default mode of operating in the world. And, um, I, uh, you know, um, there's a, there are a lot of, uh, I don't know. I, the, the only, just, I just finished that line of thought by saying, you know, I, I, I'm in coming out of that and being able to recognize it and do things differently is, is itself pretty radical. I mean, it's kind of the same sort of radical shift that occurred when I first started doing yoga. Uh, and I, um, it's, you know, it's takes, it's taken me a very long time, um, to get to this point, you know, and there's all sorts of reasons maybe why that's the case, but, if we could bring it back to yoga uh, for a moment, I think that the thing, it's probably a whole lot more common than, well, maybe not more common than you know, but more common than people think that people who get super deeply involved in, in some sort of practice that, that, that opens them, Mm -hmm. uh, they can, you know, it's very common for them to get super, ungrounded and vulnerable all sorts of problems yeah i'm curious something you said about like after you and claude had um your daughter and and there was a feeling or a tendency to want to maybe escape or like numb or um you just wanted to feel a certain way and so then you wanted to control the way you felt yeah control the way you felt you said and Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, like, do you think that the asana practice 
um, like when you first came to it and you, I mean, you went so deep with it and it was so much a part of your daily experience in your life. Was that, did that also have that same, uh, quality about it, that it was giving you a sense that you could control the way you were feeling in your life? I, I definitely think there's some, yeah, there's some, uh, you know, in some ways that it parallels that. And, uh, um, you know, then you, you, you've got this feeling and then you're chasing that feeling. Um, but, uh, I think this, you know, gets into something that I wanted to talk to you guys about, which is that, um, I do think I was even aware that how powerfully, you know, transformative the Ashtanga practice that I was learning from Savi Joyce was. And, you know, because I was really deeply doing it, but how at the same time, at least for me, how inadequate it was as a one-stop shopping way of life or spiritual path that it's simply that there, and I, and I, you know, again, this is, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to make any like grand sweeping pronouncements about Ashtanga yoga. And just, I know for me, it became, and I, and I also recognize, I think that he was teaching me at the time, like, listen, kid, <laughs> you're going to need to also cultivate a proper spiritual path. And like I was saying earlier, that can't be playing Brahmin, dressing up, playing dress up as a Brahmin. It can't be, um, what I did in response to, to thinking these things was, you know what, the person who's been most <clears throat> in, inspirational to me is, is this teacher. He's a Sanskrit scholar. I'm going to become one. He's got a family. I'm going to get one. <laughs> he's, he's really like, you know, uh, a, a teacher. That's what I'm going to do. I mean, I basically, like I said, this was like a father, father figure issue, which I then eventually transferred onto somebody else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it, it was outwardly oriented. So I'm having this profound, you know, internal experience because that's what the yoga actually does to you. If you're doing it well, as you know, mm -hmm. um, but that profound internal experience, then uh, it, it makes you very vulnerable. Like you're, you know, that that vulnerable, raw sense of sense, exposed sense of self can easily latch on to something, whatever it is, you know, whatever's available. Yeah. If you're not, you know, properly taking care of it, so um, that is properly taking care of of the self. So I'm not saying that he didn't teach us uh, the right things. I think he was teaching us. I think he was teaching me exactly the, in the right way. And I was just, uh, um, anyway, that was my main, that was the main thing I wanted to say to you guys is like, for, for me, you know, I've seen, uh, I've tremendous, especially the people that you guys have interviewed. I was looking at their list and some of their super, such dear people to me, um, a bunch of them. And, uh, I know that they've all had their own, you know, um, you know, paths and Ashtanga has been central to them. And it is to me, absolutely is to me. So now in recovery, 
it is, it's just a deep experience. And I know, but like I said, it's not, it, and especially now that I'm 53, you know, it ain't going to be one stop shopping. I mean, you're talking about like you were saying, you know, you're sitting in there in 2004 or three or whatever in, in the gallery and watching this performance of, you know, of a very difficult asana. Well, at least my experience of is the way my mind works is, or did work is that, well, if you think it's awesome and impressive and valuable, what I'm doing, then it must be. So again, looking outside and it's not exclusively why I'm doing it, but it's, it's a, it, as a, as a, uh, an underdeveloped, immature person, spiritually immature. And I think that spiritual immaturity came about a long, you know, like (laughs) that is a long backstory to that, uh, that insecurity needing to be filled by others. Once you're doing, yeah, it's a little bit like being a celebrity, you know, you probably, they they probably get a lot of the same problems. And so I, uh, you know, to me, the fact that I imploded, and was uh, didn't didn't surprise me at all. Um, <laughs> it may have come come as a surprise to other people, but not to me. Yeah, and I'm now coming back to this, you know, sense of the value, the beauty, the 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 healing potential of this of this thing that this gift that we have. You know, what other yeah. spiritual practices did you seek out? Like what? have you found in addition to the asana? Um, well, let's see. Um, I mean, probably the most, you know, the thing that I'm most actively in uh, all over time, um, it's been, it's been in Tibetan Buddhism with Tibetan Buddhist teachers. Uh, and they're more sort of in it, in that particular set of, you know, in that path, there's tremendous commonality with, uh, with Ashtanga yoga, only the Ashtanga yoga, uh, sorry, in, in, in typically in the Buddhist Dharma, that kind of manipulation of the internal energies happens only at a very much more advanced stage. Once you have already established a, a, a proper foundation of, um, yeah, like yama niyama, you only do that sort of stuff once you've really, you know, made sure that you don't get attached to the the fame, the glory, the body, uh, these these impermanent things. I mean, didn't that ever strike you as odd when you were, you know, if you started doing yoga? And it's making you look like it's actually making you look more attractive. You feel more attractive. You're feeling more sexy, but you keep reading in these like yoga books that the body sucks, <laughs> you know, yeah. and you're like, wait a minute, what's going on here? And, you know, I think that we as, as uh, not Westerners per se, but, you know, modern people, we, we are so profoundly attached to the external. We don't even you know, so given you give us an inch, we'll take a mile when it comes to, 
embracing the external. Uh, that's, so that's amazing. Cause I was, I was thinking about that, that I remember one time in like 2005 or six, I was, I was in the second series class and I was doing the practice and I'm, I remember looking over into the audience, that audience place in the foyer and seeing, and seeing Natalie Portman. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, that's Natalie Portman. Huh. And, um, and I, I, I finished my practice and I came out and she walked up to me and she said, wow, you're amazing. And that kind of, um, that kind of affirmation, that kind of, uh, uh, balloon of ego you can really kind of ride that for a long time thinking that you're really pretty good but it's it's it's, as you're saying it's the kind of thing that if you then lose that thing in any way can be completely devastating to your whole self model and i think that's also true for a lot of celebrities is that once you're no longer um no longer the star of bojack horseman in your life, <laughs> right, right, right. No, it's true, and um, you know, there, there's no, uh, you, you can't fake that sort of thing. You know, you, if you're if you're super attached to your ability to get on a, you know, yoga mat, yoga mat, and 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 you know, blast out this or that kind of kind of practice, then then you're you're in for a massive wake-up call at some point i think mm, and that's always been kind of like a sort of pet peeve of mine is the, the way that yoga has been embrace you know like um you know the, the commercial is well the commercialization of course is about the, the, the physical beauty part and you know like a, a, a in this um this Indian friend of mine was recently saying, he was like, that is not even recognizable as yoga to like a traditional yoga, you know, in the traditional yoga. Um, but he also acknowledged that even people doing it for materialistic reasons, it's giving them benefit and that's good. And yeah. I completely, I completely agree. I completely agree. I'm not going to judge. Yeah. But for me, it was like, it, it started to feel like a burden because okay, I'm keeping this thing up, but I'm not feeling very, uh, I'm not, I'm not feeling good. Um, I'm feeling, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling whatever it is, you know, I'm, I'm self-centered in the extreme. I'm, I'm afraid, uh, all of these things. And I didn't, you know, I could feel so harmony. Like you were asking, does it give you that same thing? Yeah, I could, feel it could give me like relief for the hour and a half that I was practicing. Mm. Um, but it absolutely wasn't providing me with, nor should, nor, nor should I have expected it to provide me with answers to how to like live in the world. And uh, that, that invitation had always been there. So, so as far as like spiritual, you know, activity or practice, um, Uh, that whole disillusionment process itself was extremely heart opening to me. Mm. Disillusionment and, and losing, 
you know, the ability to keep up appearances, you know. Um, so like, as Russell knows, you know, I, I, I got, you know, I had sort of this grand, uh, academic career, which then, you know, I, I couldn't sustain because I became more and more uh, dysfunctional, I guess we would call it. Well, let's, let's set that up a little bit, John. Um, cause one of the things that I, one of my, the, one of the memories that I have of you that, that is most profound is, uh, I think, let's say in 2012, 2011, uh, you were in the midst of, uh, a, a downward spiral. Mm-hmm. And I had, I had picked you up from a hotel in Encinitas and I was taking you to go train a group of teachers who were going to work for us as yoga teachers in the schools at um, Nancy Joyce's invitation in her school district. Uh-huh. And um, I picked you up and this is, this is important. The training was important. I had organized uh, the entire event and uh, I was taking you into the school. We we're having a great time, you know, just chatting about it fucking anything and and about as we were like pulling into the driveway you turned to me and said so what am i teaching about today <laughs> uh, and i was God. like holy fuck uh uh okay i thought you had a hang on this thing um we're gonna we're gonna have you teach on the differences and similarities between yoga and meditation for the group mm-hmm. and he said yeah okay and then you walked in stone cold and maybe not sober, but stone cold. <laughs> and you gave an hour and a half lecture on this subject ad hoc uh-huh. without any preparation. And it was a phenomenal lecture. And to me, it kind of really illustrated your intellect and your ability as a teacher. And I was, I was floored by it, <laughs> especially later when I really knew what, and how, like the band, like the shape that you were in, like how, in what bad shape you were in as far as uh, the day drinking. Mm-hmm. I, you, you also, in the midst of this, I mean, before that, you had, um, and Gene Ruffin had showed this to me, this, you had, through your relationship with um, a hedge fund manager in Greenwich, Connecticut, Paul Tudor Jones and his wife, Sonia Jones, who had hired me as well, you had present, presented them with a um, – maybe you could tell the story better than I could, but you had presented them with a, 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 um, a, uh, an idea, a concept of creating the uh, Contemplative Sciences Center in Virginia. Right. And you were successful in right. them to, to give you $20 million to give to the school, maybe indirectly – and and you had created this entire um, organization outside of, out of whole cloth that still exists. That still exists. I wonder. Can you tell? Is that accurate? Did I get any of that right? Um, everything you said is is correct, except it was twelve million dollars. Um, and uh, <laughs> uh, and there's been you know, but there it may be much more by now. Um, and it was. Yeah, you know, the thing... Uh, How did you even meet them it, in the first place? Oh, 
those uh, that that family. Um, oh, I know exactly how. Uh, my one of my dearest friends uh, from from New York, uh, Maria Rubinate. Oh yeah. Somehow was introduced to Sonia and became her her private uh, yoga instructor, and very close with that that family because she would tour you know, with them and as as just as a teacher. And teach it the whole family. The kid that family had four has four kids, mm-hmm. and so she was really a, you know you know teaching as well in California. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know how anyway. I don't know how Maria met them, but but Maria and I were the dearest friends, and so this was actually <laughs> coincided. Not you know again, maybe these things are you know. <laughs> they karmically ripen around the same time that I was, uh, you know, starting to self-medicate in, in my weird depressed, depressed, confused state in, in India, I think in 2004 or three, uh, I got a call and out of nowhere from Maria saying, Hey, I'm in South India, uh, with this, family and um they they want to meet you can you come down here i said well i mean you know i'm I'm a 50 hour train ride away uh (laughs) and i'm you know i have classes and whatnot and she's maria said that's not a problem (laughs) and there and i ended up you know the whole thing becomes kind of um you know very Hollywood. I, you know, it was a private plane that takes me down there. We land next to Chamundi Hill. Uh, and you know, I became connected with them and I did, I did work, which I'm still, I'm still proud of, but it was all bogged down with this, you know, very long, uh, long running, uh, you know, struggle that I was having. And so, and, you know, you, you point something out when you say, like, I, you know, just walked in cold and, and could talk to them. Well, I mean, a lot of that is, uh, is, is just plain old privilege, you know, on my side that I, I was, uh, I mean, yes, I have a good mind. Um, and to the extent that it's any, you know, that, that I, was that I've worked hard or been disciplined or something. Yeah, I've developed it. But at the same time, I just, a lot of these things have just been handed to me. Uh, the yoga I've worked incredibly hard on and I, uh, I, I'm just, what I'm trying to say is I'm deeply recognizing that I could get away with being a complete mess inside and yet, still functioning at a high level, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, um, which, which turns out is, in the long run is a, is a really bad, you know, it is a real problem because if you can continue to like get by, uh, on your wits or your, you know, being a white male with, with, a, with, you know, <laughs> who is articulate, um, you, you don't necessarily have to change. Um, you can continue to think that it's, uh, that it, that it's toler, you know, it's still tolerable. And I think with the, you know, and this is what I, I care about a lot with your friendship, both of you and, and this sort of project that you're doing is that, uh, that 
the power of the yoga resides not, you know, it, it, it itself is a technology. It's a method, right? It's just like, just the way that, I don't know, the jet propulsion, it just works, you know, it, it doesn't matter what you happen to be thinking at the time. Um, and that it's, it needs to be, in my experience, it needs to be plugged in with a, uh, but I, uh, let, let me rephrase that. It doesn't need to do anything, you, but you will get the powerful effect, which will then enhance whatever view of the world and yourself you happen to be having. Mm-hmm. And so if you already are massively prone to insecurity, egotism, self-centeredness, you know, miserliness, whatever negativity. I believe it actually will focus that. Um, and at the same time, by the same token, it can be radically enhancing and empowering of a, of a positive, open-hearted, um, you know, way of being in the world. And these things go under the radar at first because when you, you know, like for most of us, I don't know for you, but when I first start doing yoga, it, it is heart opening because that's actually the pranic experience of, mm-hmm. you know, of the release of this self ego grasping. And then everything is good, which is a drug. You know? yeah. <laughs> everything is good. But the thing is, it needs to be followed up with, with, um, Discipline. with work and discipline. And it seems like most of the people that you, you, you've hosted and talked to, they have had to, you know, they followed various paths like that. Um, there's this, this notion in, uh, in, in Buddhist teaching, which is called, you know, refuge. Mm. Uh, and refuge is not an acceptance of faith. It is simply a realistic assessment of something that can actually help you. So you, you know, in the long term, you know, it's just, it's just sort of a, an, a realistic appraisal of, of yourself and of the world around you and asking, can these things long term make me happy? Um, you know, material things, probably not my body, probably not. And, and so on and so forth. And so that, that's described in the Tibetan tradition as a feeling of renunciation, which is different than, you know, there's like more extreme renunciation where you become a monk or something like you're renouncing the world. This is really more an attitude of we have this precious human life and the opportunity, you know, and maybe we even have a very good, you know, body and, and, and good mind and it's not defective and it's very strong. Then the question arises, like, is that, what what will we do that, with that? And the renunciation part is to say, I will use this for its greatest benefit. You know, because these bodies are loners, right? They're just basically loners. And we we go to the people around us. Bowling alley. What's that? Like a shoe at a bowling alley. <laughs> right, exactly. We will eventually have to go back and they'll spray that shit in us. And... <laughs> so for me, for me, like, yes, it's been an extremely long time to come around to 
feeling that the 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 the, um, the practice of of the yoga has always been about finding this open-hearted state and um and i'm not going to say that i found it but when i do practice these days it is uh, it's, it's very deep you know it gets very deep and it brings me into a real state of of um you know i think both clarity and stability to the point where i can actually stop being such a selfish prick <laughs> You're in you're in Sedona now, uh, and you've been there um, the through the whole COVID times. No, no, I well partly here and partly back home in Virginia, in Charlottesville. And I guess it's it's been kind of a, a lonely period for you out there in Sedona. Mm, yeah, I, it has, you know, um, but that's you know, yeah, it's just the nature of the job. Is, it is here and uh and and uh, as far as you know teaching you know, because my job doesn't involve teaching particularly but uh i've started developing sanskrit teaching materials which will be you which will be for online and i'm i'm really excited about that i'm very looking forward to doing that and also just to doing you know doing ashtanga practice as a regular thing it keeps mm-hmm. my shit together yeah I wanted to, speaking of COVID, I wanted to ask you if you remembered this. Um, we, I, I remember after a, a bout of drinking that you and Jean and I had in D.C., um, we woke up that morning and, and we went into the, the White House grounds to do a presentation on contemplative and alternative medicine to right. um, the the budgetary office, the first lady's office, chief of uh, cabinet secretary, Chris Liu. And we had, we did a whole round table on yoga that day. Yeah. uh, Which is one of the more surreal and phenomenal events that you and I have been a part of. Yeah. Not terribly different from any other day that you and I have been together. (laughs) Um, I wanted to ask you, do you remember that like at about towards the end of the round table, and um, who's that guy that you like so much? The um, the Spectrum Doctor Harmony. Oh, um, uh, Neil. John Cabot Zinn was there, and this guy who who does the oh, the Spectrum. The hor- um, yeah, uh, I know who you're talking about uh, he the was, heart guy. He, the heart guy, huh? exactly. The heart, he guy. Was the heart. Yeah, yeah, for your heart, <laughs> for vegan, for your heart. Yeah. Um, he anyway, was he was good. What's his name again? Oh my gosh, I don't know. I'm totally blanking. Okay, well, it'll come. We can splice it in later. <laughs> but I remember that we, you and I were, were sitting there, and I had just said something Atkins. about. Is it Atkins? No, no, it's not Atkins. <laughs> that's <laughs> another diet. It's a very Jewishy. That's a that's name. a that's a diet that's not good for your heart. <laughs> oh, okay, sorry. No, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, and you're right. He had the, he had like a Jufro. Yeah, he did. He was spectacular. And he's a Jewish. student of Swami Satchidananda. Yeah, yeah, but he was brilliant. Yeah, so he he gave a talk. If we have a moment of silence, Harmony can spend the thirty minutes. <laughs> Dean Ornish. Dean Ornish. Yeah, yeah Dean Ornish. Dean gave a talk. Ornish. And our Ashtangi friend Tina Logdemeo 
you know, she and I had kind of put the thing together and it was amazing. And Eddie was to your right and you're sitting with me and Gene. Richard fucking Freeman was there. For some yeah. And um, uh, I just said something about, you know, really wanting to, to, to use you know, yoga as an example of how we can, you know, make, make healthcare less expensive for everyone. And that would be a good thing for all of us. You know, if we're all in, taking better precautions. Do you remember that Anthony Fauci was there? You, you mentioned that in a text and it blew my mind. Cause no, I, I didn't. I, and if he, and if I did know, I had, you know, didn't, I certainly didn't know who he was. And I, now I don't remember that it was, he was there. The director of the NIH who at the time was Anthony Fauci, a wow. little guy in a small suit with gray hair <laughs> the littlest guy in the room spoke up and said, look guys, it's all well and good. What Dean Ornish is saying that yoga will take, will add 10, 20 years to your life. We don't care. (laughs) He said that he said, what we want to know is will it reduce uh, school violence? Uh If you can prove to us that yoga reduces school violence, then come back and we have something we can talk about. Wow. And then the meeting ended. Tina said some words, and uh, the first lady's chief of staff said some words, and and Chris Liu, cabinet secretary, said some words. And then Gene stood up, looked at me, and said, "Now, now that was a great meeting." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Why, why, Gene?" And he said, "Because that seemed like a total failure. We got nothing out of that. We got nothing from these people. Bupkis." And he says, no, the, the little guy there, Fauci, he told it like it is. Now we know what we need to do. Right. We need to go prove that yoga reduces school violence, and we've got, we've got everything we want. Now we know. And that's, that directed the foundation ever since. Yeah. Science well, that, was, that, was... that, it fixes, that it fixes hostility in kids and the, you know, the amygdala. Right. And, and that, well, that, first of all, that's a brilliant gene anecdote. Cause I it's exactly was his, his unique gift, you know, like he could just see right through to the, 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 uh, the essence of, of what was happening. And I, you know, personally, I'm really glad that, you know, you're recalling this because yeah, I mean, going back to the to the to the practice or the Ashtanga practice or whatever you if you want to call it spiritual practice, that mm-hmm. that's really what it boils down to. You know, like if you can reduce your violent interaction with with the world, then at least then you have an opportunity to address things like you know, I guess diet and health and longevity and. And all these things, but as long as you're still, you know, consumed with 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 anger, fear, um, which many people can't, you know, especially children, they don't really have an option there because it's being it's in their environment. Then um, you really don't have a chance. So I think that's part of the the value of the yoga practice that I was missing and that I was, um, you know, that I was chasing, but I was definitely missing. And that was this basic, you know, compassion 
towards myself. And that was pointed out to me, you know, by some very wise people on different occasions. They'd be like, you know, you really shouldn't talk to yourself in that way or treat Hmm. yourself like that. And I'd be like, yeah, 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 right. (laughs) But I'm too arrogant, you know, to like take anybody's word for it. And I was so desperate to like just keep keep on keeping on, Um, which eventually, you know, didn't didn't serve me or anybody else well. But uh, that was an amazing event. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Really, it was so cool. Good old good old Anthony Fauci. Right. Yeah. Can you, so just to finish, can you tell us about the work you're doing now and who you're doing it for and, and, and this very valuable mission that you have? Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, I, I was, as, as, uh, you know, I already already talked about, I was, uh, you know, in full on academia, uh, teaching in a department of religious studies, teaching about Buddhism, Asian religion, uh, and also working with this uh, this new foundation, uh, this new center at the University of Virginia, the Contemplative Sciences Center, which we could talk a lot about, but I'm not involved with them currently, so probably leave that to the side. But it's just you know generally kind of interdisciplinary uh, effort through nursing and medicine, and you know across the university to to develop and yeah, especially as education to develop, uh, you know, research paradigms for evaluating exactly what you're talking about, like how contemplative practice affects, you know, school experience for younger kids. Uh, and, and it was supposed to have a great impact on the school itself, which I don't believe it actually did. Um, mm. but again, um, I guess that's about the most that I'll say about it, but I departed, uh, and then started, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago. I started, I, I reconnected, um, with some, um, some people that I had, when I was a graduate student, um, these, um, this, this American organization that's very connected with the Tibetan refugee settlements in South India where they do text preservation. And at the time they were mainly doing the preservation, uh, digitization of Tibetan language materials, which were not the kind of thing that you could walk into a bookstore and find. And in fact, they're kind of were endangered because of the, the huge flight from Tibet starting in 1959 of many to, Tibetans and the political turmoil there. So anyway, that had been going on for about 30 years. I had connected with them as a grad student and done some, some work with them, reconnected with them. And they approached me about a new project that they were doing to digitize the entire uh, Tibetan language collection at the National Library of Mongolia in Ulaanbaatar. Mm-hmm. Uh, which oh, I was interested there once. You what? I was arrested there once. In Ulaanbaatar? Yeah. Whoa. We'll have to hear about that sometime. Maybe another another podcast. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, so uh, 
So I worked with them to set up that project. Uh, it, it continues now and continuing now. They have a huge collection of Tibetan Buddhist material because Mongolia historically is adopted Tibetan Buddhism way back in the time of uh, Kublai Khan mm-hmm. and even before. Uh, so I reconnected with them and it's uh, starting a year ago, I joined this organization at the time that was going by one name, uh, Asian Classics Input Project. Uh, it, we're now, so I came on board about a year ago to help them transition to a much bigger digital library uh, uh, with a broader scope. So they have this, this very important uh, Tibetan text uh uh, what would you call it, resource. But it's very obscure and not only really scholars know about it and it's underutilized. Um, they also wanted to expand into the same sort of thing with Sanskrit language. So I came on and I'm helping basically those those two efforts. One is to expand their... their um, the scope of the of, of their whole mission, which is to go from narrowly just preserving Tibetan texts to a, a bigger digital library thing, where that is just one sort of collection, you know, one holding. And secondly, which is my main job, is to do a lot of preservation of Sanskrit materials in South Asia, meaning Nepal and India. And so there are three centers which do a variety of things like digitizing palm leaf manuscripts or whatever other kind of materials. There are millions of unpublished, unrecorded, and sort of fragile manuscripts in uh, India and Nepal. Uh, And then also kind of, and this is still just a huge work in progress, but sort of curating that in such a way that it becomes not just a resource for scholars, um, which of course it would, well, hopefully will be, but also more like an opportunity for people to, to, you know, lay people or whatever you call them, non-scholars to learn about the literary cultures of, uh, of Asia. Uh, right now, meaning Mongolia, <laughs> you know, Mongolia, Tibet, India, Nepal, which have been really, you know, the, of course, the these are the places that from which we, you know, have received the precious teachings of yoga and dharma, and mm-hmm. you know, there's and plenty and plenty of other things. Um, so I'm not sure if that was that at all clear, but my my day to day reality is. We're going to edit that down to about 20 seconds. So that's, that's fine. <laughs> We're going to have time on that. Okay. This is the public radio. No. And, um, no but your they, day today is, is going, what do you do? You wake up, you, what does your day look like? Oh, what does my day look like? Okay. Oh, and I should say what it's called. This is the, 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 the new project is called Asian legacy library. Um, my day to day is, uh, you know, checking in with um, the, my three centers, one in Kathmandu, one in Varanasi, and one in, um, sorry, in Kerala. Uh, actually, I don't wake up and do that. Usually I do that at night. 
And then during the day, I, you know, anything from, I do a lot of cataloging these days because what we're trying to do is figure out, you know, what collections we want to digitize, uh, seeking out new collections. Um, there's a huge project at the London, not what's it called, School of Africa, School of Oriental and African Studies in London. Oh, yeah. One, you know, so I, and they have a big project called the Hatha Yoga Project. And so I want to, you know, I'm trying to reach out to different similar, you know, scholarly projects and get them to, and, and collaborate with them and support their, support their efforts. You know, so as my experience, I think yours too, of, of, uh, you know, yoga, um, and spiritual practice, lifestyle practice, whatever you want to call it, you know, that we've learned about has been enormously guided and driven by personal teachers. Mm -hmm. uh, like I didn't learn about how to do yoga from going to a bookstore. And, and I was lucky that way, right? <laughs> because it's really fucking hard to do it <laughs> if you have to do it, you know, because you just, there's things that you aren't going to learn. Um, and so and I know, you know, we share that in the Ashtanga tradition. It is a, requires at some point the personal direction of a teacher. Yeah. Uh, and that really, I think, goes for pretty much, you know, all uh, of these related traditions, whether it's Tibetan Buddhism or, um, you know, Indian Buddhism or Sufism, mm -hmm. everything in South Asia, you know, it is very oriented toward the personal relationship and lineage and being able to continue that lineage. It's not sufficient simply to have the books lying around, you know, that doesn't keep the lineage alive. However, it is a component of it. And mm -hmm. so the bigger picture for me is to, you know, I fell in love with, with yoga and basically with Patabi Joyce and his, you know, master, what I saw as like this, like a, he was like a walking library, you know, yeah. his knowledge, his scholarly knowledge and everything. And, and his, you know, his, his devotional practices. And that gave me that first introduction to that. So I have a, a, a deep, I always love school and I have a deep love and reverence for learning in general. Uh, and this is just part of, you know, helping to keep, to keep that connection vital uh, and hopefully to support the, the you know, as a resource for the teachers, I mean, like the lineage teachers particularly in Asia, those in South Asia uh, and Nepal and so forth, you know, because we just have such a debt to, to our teachers. That's why we say that, you know, the lineage prayer before we do Ashtanga. Mm. That's right. So we're connecting back to it, you know, and, and the book is sometimes, you know, well, it's just, you know, sits there in, in, in a, in a shop, but if it does disappear and then people who know about it disappear, well, then that's bad. Yeah. I, I thought that you were out of the, the Jiva Mukti scene in Manhattan and that's how you got into. <laughs> but 
you you weren't. How did you actually meet Patavi Joyce? How did you actually what what was your first Ashtanga class? Yeah, so actually I do have like one connection with Jiva Mukti. Um and and it has to do exactly with this. This is okay, so you want the origin story, my my Ashtanga origin story. But that was the whole point of the podcast. <laughs> oh, it was? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's no. where we should have started with that. But I just want to, I need to tighten this up. Okay. Okay. Here goes. So in 1992, I'm living in New York, working at the, the, uh, at the wall street journal, the newspaper next door to the, for the, the, uh, the world trade center, which was standing at the time. And, uh, and quite miserable, uh, with, with things. I didn't like what I was doing very dissatisfied um a friend of mine um was very ill uh like our age you know you know he had hodgkin's disease and so he he we were trying to like you know my brother and i were trying to like encourage him to do healthy things and he said i'll meet you down at this yoga school i was like great i'll i'll do a yoga class with you that's that's you know no problem um he he bailed the yoga school was Jiva Mukti on Second Avenue, right. and so there I'm at Jiva Mukti. I do the yoga class. It's really it was so nice. Really enjoyed it. And at, at the same, and then I ended up going back, at, you know, a handful of times. In while that was going on, this was late in the year of '92. Um, another uh, college friend of mine, uh, also working in New York, also miserable, had decided. He was going to cash in and uh, go to India. And he was a student, or he was a, a, a very, he was a student of Tibetan Buddhism. He's studying at a, a, a temple in New Jersey. Now, unbeknownst to me, this was the temple of a center which had been built by Robert Thurman's Lama, Mongolian, who had passed away. And that's where this, my friend David was learning about Tibetan Buddhism. And so he had connections in India to go study with Tibetans and blah, you know, I had no real interest in that or anything. Uh, so he and I collaborated to, or hatched the plan. Okay. You know, starting the end of 92, beginning 93, we're getting out of here. We're going to India. Uh, but before I left, when I was going through Jiva Mukti one day, there was actually a little sort of note on the door, uh, not the door, the bulletin board, sorry, uh, bulletin board saying like, if you want to write to Swami Bodhinanda, he can be reached at this address, Lakshmi Puram, Mysore, India. So I was like, oh shit, I'm going to India. I'll write that down. Um, so <laughs> I wrote it down. And also I should mention that my intention was to stay in India for about like three weeks. <clears throat> you yeah. know, I was, I was going to continue on and go um, look for work in Hong Kong. Nice. Um, you know, Vietnam, Hong Kong, one of these things. So we, we fly to um, Delhi. And then what ensued was, and this is my friend David Newman. He's like one of my dearest friends from, from college. Uh, now, David, because of all his time spending at this uh, Tibetan Buddhist Learning Center in um, in New Jersey was there one weekend or so when this totally groovy kind of uh, hippie musician guy named Danny Paradise 
showed up. <laughs> showed up, and and just because he was like cruising around, I mean, he was like this free spirit, you know, yeah. guy. Larger than life. Excellent. Larger than life, and that's what he was described as to me. He's like this, and he taught. So he had taught the the residents of the center. Uh, stand, uh, Surya Namaskar and standing poses from the Ashtanga system. And when I started traveling with my friend, he was like, this is such a great thing. We should be doing, we should do it every day. I didn't know, you know, it was called like, sun, I just thought it was like, do some sun salutation, do some of this sort of thing, maybe a few push ups. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're so we're traveling. We take, uh, and, and so now, now this is an important part of the story that, David destination in India was a, a was a monastery, one of the you know Tibetan resettlement in South India monasteries. Uh, and the sum total of the directions he was given was it's in South India. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so we bought tickets from Delhi and we took this insane train ride, like that is about oh it's like about fifty two hours. You get yeah. to Bangalore and we're like so wiped out and we were quite sick and feeling horrible. Finally, we make our way down to Mysore because as far as we know, that's where we heard the Tibetan monasteries are. They're outside okay. Mysore. And then yeah. once, and, that's right. yeah. yeah, and that was correct. So we thought we, had, yeah. we thought we were good. David yeah. had a bunch of like cash and like his, you know, that he was supposed to hand over to some monks. And we're walking down on Muntry Road. <laughs> we're like the sorriest sight you ever saw. And we see a Tibetan Buddhist monk. You know, you see them in Mysore all the time. Yeah. Oh, and, he, and he knew a tiny bit of English. David knew the name of the monastery and said, oh, you know, Genla. Is there a monastery or something like that? Well, there, it's a, <laughs> the one that we were looking for was not the one near Mysore, it was actually in northern Karnataka. Oh, so no. we asked the guy, and he's like, oh, no, no, Drebung's not here. It's about, uh, we're like, how far is it? Oh, it's about 600 kilometers away. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and we're like, I said, David, no way. I'm not getting on another bus. I can't do it. So instead, yeah. we went out to the monastery. We went to Sarah Monastery. We spent a in time. In Yes, exactly. By the so that was its own interesting, fun thing. Um, I mean, it was it was a fun thing. I mean, you know, we we were welcomed in by a, you know some monks and stayed in their temple house. We came back into Mysore, and uh, you know, we were still doing this this these exercises every morning. Um, and I said, David, I suddenly remembered. In my notebook, I had written down an address. Some guy, Swami Bodhinanda, he's supposed to be here, and it's like some yoga center in Mysore. Let's go check it out. So, what you know, we did what you know logically anyone would do. We went to the phone book, <laughs> and I bet you didn't know there was a phone book for Mysore. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't. I really had no idea. Wow. Yes. So we look it up and it's, uh, I said, you know, Ashtanga Yoga Center. We're like, oh, shit, oh my God, this is great. You know, now we know where it is. We get a rickshaw to the address, but it's actually the BNS Iyengar Center at the Jagannath Palace. 
giant moron palace, <laughs> a, a co a student of Patabi Joyce. Co student of Krishnamacharya and Patabi Joyce. Yeah. So we go and we and we meet the nice guy. He's a very, very nice guy. And he's and, and to his credit, he 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 admitted this was not we were not in the right place. He's like, no, actually it's in this other area called Lakshmi So we get in the workshop. And we show up in the late afternoon and, and um this you know, this guy is sitting out on his front stoop reading the newspaper in like a dish towel. <laughs> <laughs> He's wearing a dish towel. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like his afternoon dish towel around his waist, yeah. his, his uh, lungi. And yeah. we were prepared. We had some, you know, some just chocolates and gifts and fruits. And we talked to him for like a, a minute and, and, and said, uh, you know, we would like to come and observe. Can we do that? So, yes. You come tomorrow morning, 430 or five. Yeah. <laughs> So that next morning, we went into the tiny little room, uh, and luxury for um, held holds, you know, about uh, ten people, maybe yeah, eight, twelve. <clears throat> David and I sat down in the room, which at the time he let us do, and in the room we're practicing uh, all in the front. Tim Miller, Richard Freeman, um, I don't know Graham Northfield. I don't know if you know who that is from. Sure, Winniehead. Winniehead. Yes. And just back back right corner was this super pale dude, Ginger, in purple speedo. Oh yeah, that'd be Eddie. That would be <laughs> and that would be Eddie Stern. And so I watched this I watched this room and he's like, you know, Gurji's like blasting around and he's on everybody and he's moving through the and I just the 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 just seeing that something blew my mind. It blew my mind. And then Eddie finished up his practice. And as he was on his way out, he says, Hey guys, you know, like, uh, oh, right away we connected and we went out to breakfast with him, discovered, you know, that we were, uh, you know, we were all New Yorkers. Right. So that afternoon I went back to, um, the Tabby Joyce and we said, we, Oh, this is such a, it was so cool. Thank you for letting us watch. We'd like to come and do practice for like, uh, maybe a couple of weeks. And he said, mm, no. <laughs> he said, what? He said, y- if you want to come and stay, you have to stay a minimum of three months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. Yeah. Good trip. So we had a little off, so, you know, discussion off to the side. David said, well, I, I'm not going to do this uh, because I'm going to continue on and, you know, to I have to go to this other monastery and and other continue my studies, but I can see this is like something really like is like, it's really hit you. I think you should stay. And I said, okay, I think so too, but this, I can't commit to three months. I mean, that's insane. Like who commits to something for three months? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody does that. I'll just tell him I'm going to stay for three months and then I'll just leave whenever. <laughs> <laughs> the old guy will believe me. So I told him, I said, okay, I'm going to stay for three months. Can, when can I start? And he said, well, first you have to, first you have to write me a letter. He said, you have to, you have to leave and write me a letter and request to come take practice. That's amazing. And I was like, I'm standing right here. (laughs) (laughs) I said, well, how long? He said, well, however long it takes for the letter to get to me. (laughs) Wow. 
So I left, I, I went out back out to the monastery, to the Tibetan Bailakupe monastery. Like that hour and a half fucking bus ride to Bailakupe. <laughs> I wrote him a letter requesting permission to come and take practice. Uh, I waited a sufficient time in like a week. Yeah. He, ne- he never mentioned, he never mentioned the letter. When I showed up, you know, he said, fine. He took me up to his office. I, I paid him for a month and then I ended up staying seven months, you know? Uh, (laughs) And that was, that was this roundabout way. Uh, And then from then on, you know, I just continued to go back and forth from New York to, to Mysore, which then in, you know, more spending more time also with the Tibetan, uh, connection, um, I think yeah. that's a Muppet movie. Actually, the Muppets take the the Tibetan connection. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I I just want to say that's a beautifully elliptical and very John Campbell way of finishing the podcast with the beginning. And I want to thank you so much for sharing. Uh, that's you've been incredibly honest and and incredibly generous with your spirit and your time and your intellect. And I'm I love you, brother. And I love you too. And I, I just have to say like, you know, my, my honesty is, uh, is, uh, simply you drew it out of me. I feel like I've been on sodium pentothal the whole time, you know, <laughs> I like, I probably, I'm going to probably live to regret, but, um, no, I mean, I really, I, I care a lot about you, Russell and Harmony. I'm so glad to have met you too. I hope I get to see you guys sometime soon and by the way we have a brand new president you can come back now it's all right <laughs> well you know, we heard about that the, the, the fbi goes through you know circuitous and byzantine process for me to be allowed back in the country but we'll see we'll all start right. that process now okay <laughs> thank you so much john it was such thank a you guys pleasure. thank you for having me love you both love, love you, you too, too. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in eternity's shadow Watching the breaking Heart